0: So, good morning again. And yeah, as, this, as you see this around me, just be reminded to pray for the, the many who will gather. Uh, when, when we do our Vacation Bible School program, there's a lot of uh, families connected to that program who are not connected to our church or really any church. And we introduce them to Jesus Christ. And we pray that God would use that and that would bear fruit in the lives of these people and, and even the, the parents who are dropping off and connecting in different ways. We partner with a number of churches to pull this off, and we're just really excited to see what God's going to do. So we thank you for being prayerful towards that. The other thing that's happening in the life of our church that I don't want you to miss, and there's information in the bulletin, I believe, but there's a baptism next week. Is that Yeah, there's a believer's baptism, so an immersion baptism. And if you're interested in being baptized, I'd like you to reach out and contact me. And if I get you information about that, If you would like to just see the baptism and participate and celebrate, there'll be testimonies and and people being baptized, Uh, come and visit that, and there's information in the bulletin, so take a look at that. didn't want you to miss that in the midst of everything. Uh, But we are continuing in our sermon series. We've been preaching through the prophet Isaiah, and the thing I had to remind myself this week, and I'll remind you, is that these prophecies weren't primarily written to you and these pri- these prophecies are not primarily about you and because they are so good and so alive and reveal God's heart to us it f- we, we want to read ourselves right into the prophecy and what we need to be we need to take a step back from that especially today where the driving force or the driving theme here is fear and fear is a nearly universal experience so you could even just sitting where you are, you could probably easily think of something that you're afraid of, something that you're anxious about, uh, something that gives you worry. And you can think about the thing you're afraid of, and immediately think about yourself. But what I want to do this morning is think a little bit about what is God doing here. What is God's heart? And then, and then we'll come back to our hearts at, at the end of this. But. Uh, when I, when I introduced this series, I said there was three things we were trying to accomplish. One was to sort of unlock the Bible, parts of the Bible that we may not be as familiar with. Uh, the second thing was we wanted to know God's heart more and understand who God is and how he works and what he loves and what he hates and, and just to align our hearts with his. And thirdly, to see how all this points to Jesus. So I want to do that this morning. In terms of the Bible... Many people are familiar with this passage, especially verse 14. You'll notice verse 14 says, uh, The Lord will give a sign, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Many people are familiar with that verse because it gets quoted in the New Testament at the birth of Jesus. So we read that during Advent, and we understand that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this uh, prophecy. But not as many people are familiar with King Ahaz at the aqueduct. It's not as familiar as a passage, and I want to sort of unlock the backstory for that, for you a little bit today, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, Secondly, when we think about God's heart, really the key verse here today is verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God's heart and his desire is to be with his people and to provide for his people and to love and care for his people that they might experience all of who he is and faith is the key to that so that's going to be God's heart and and lastly Jesus, this is all going to point to Jesus of course the uh, you know the gospel writers pick this up as as fulfilled in Jesus' birth but it's actually fulfilled even more so than that by Jesus and you may not, in ways you may not even realize so I want to sort of explore those three things this morning as we continue, let's pray together so, Father God, we, now as we approach your word, we just incline our hearts to you, Lord, and just pray that you would meet us where we are at. All that we've experienced this week, all that we've experienced, even this morning, Lord, we, just, we lay it aside and we just pray that you would give us faith to be open to whatever you want to show us right now. So we pray that you would be our teacher. We pray that you would receive all the glory for all that happens here in this place, in our lives, in, in the life of this church, Lord, it's yours. So do your good work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first thing, the Bible background. We have King Ahaz. He's the king of Judah. This is the, Isaiah's prophecies are primarily to the kings of Judah. Judah's the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom. It was a civil war in Israel. Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is in the south. And we have King Ahaz. Now the background here is Ahaz is a bad, bad King. 2 uh, Kings chapter 16 says that Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. You can also read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. And as we as we study through Isaiah, if you're reading along at home, if you read Kings and Chronicles, it does give more back historical background into the situation that Isaiah is preaching to, that he's prophesying to. But Ahaz abandoned the worship of God and started to experiment in worship of the surrounding nations. So including human sacrifice, he was uh, burning sacrifices and, and incense and in all these high places and, and violated God's law and how God desired to be worshipped. So he's a, he's a bad king and he's he's abandoning true worship. And now he's in trouble. King Ahaz is in trouble, and there's a lot of different names to describe the same two people here. We have King Rezin of Aram, which is also referred to here as Damascus, which was the city. So King Rezin, and you have King Pekah. He's the king of Israel. He's also referred to as Ramalia's son, and Israel is also referred to as Ephraim, which is the city, and also referred to as Samaria. So. And all these words are used kind of interchangeably. Two kings, Pekah and Rezin. These two kings are joined together, and they're threatening to attack evil King Ahaz in Judah. The reason that they're doing that is because there's another nation out there, Assyria. Assyria is very powerful, and they're they're overtaking all the nations around them, and they're a big threat. King Pekah and King Rezin, they they wanted Judah to form an alliance together, the three nations, to fight against Assyria, to try to protect themselves against this superpower. But Judah wouldn't align with these nations. So what they're going to do instead is these these two nations that are threatened, they're just going to take over Judah. They're going to put this other king on the throne. This is uh They call him the son of Tabeel. It's just some puppet king they'll put in place so that they can have control of Judah, so they can be safer against Assyria. That's the the setting here. But what this has created for King Ahaz and his people is just a great deal of fear because because they're being threatened. Look at verse 2. The house of David was told, again, they are talking about Judah here. The house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and all his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They are very afraid of what's about to happen. And it's into this setting that God sends his prophet. King Ahaz goes to check their water supply. So he goes up to the aqueduct, which is a perfectly good move when you're going to be attacked by invading nations to check your water supply. If they cut us off, how long can we last? Can we survive? What kind of fight can we put up? And is our water safe? Would 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 our northern enemies you know, be able to cut us off? And it's God sends his prophet. Here's the message from the prophet. Verse four. Isaiah says, Be careful, keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. King Pekka and King Rezin, they seem you know fiery and they seem powerful, but just, it's all smoke. Verse 7, it will not happen. So God promises that these two enemies will not be victorious. And verse 9 is the call to faith. He says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God's promise, they will not win. Have faith in that promise. In fact, the promise is so good, ask for a sign. I'll prove it to you. Verse 10, again, the Lord speaks to Ahaz. Verse 11, ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz says, verse 12, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. The prophet asks him to ask God for a son. He says, no, I won't do that. I don't want to test God. Now, Ahaz's impulse here is, is in a sense, a good impulse, that it's not good to test God, that God's law forbids that that people would test him. And we, we shouldn't ask God for signs. We shouldn't be putting God to the test like that. In fact, in Jesus' day, there were religious leaders who were asking him for a sign from heaven, and he called them a wicked and a rebellious nation. We shouldn't be out asking God for signs or testing God. But it happens, and people even today will test God like that. They'll, you could picture, say, a high school student sitting in his bed late at night, questioning his faith, questioning the world and saying, God, if you're real, make the light flicker. I'm looking at the light. Make the light flicker, and the light doesn't flicker. Or there's somebody who's out of work, a man who says, God, if you're real, then you'll give me a job by Friday, or I'm done with you. Perhaps a woman struggling at her marriage. God, if you're real, you'll save my marriage. Again, these are all tests that can be given to God. And we should not be testing God. God has not promised those things. And really, we shouldn't be asking for signs at all. And one of the reasons that it's not good to ask for signs is that we are a desperate people. And when we're desperate, we'll see a sign in anything. Again, picture a man who desires to have a girlfriend, and he prays, God, please give me a sign. Show me who she is. And the next day at work, female co-worker, walks over to the desk and says, please, can you go over these status reports? And she walks away, and he says, thank you, God, for the sign. (laughs) She's the one. (laughs) Somebody's home, desires to have a a new car, and prays, God, do do you want me to have a new car? And, And she turns on the TV, and there's a commercial for a car. Thank you, Lord, for the sign from heaven. You see how our hearts are so deceptive that we can see anything as a, a sign from God. In Scripture, God does give signs. It's very rare. And as you read through the whole Bible, it's not a common thing. It does happen, but it's very rare. And God intervenes. It's typically a supernatural thing, not just a, uh, not just a, not just a commercial on television. Maybe if the television levitated, now that would be... That would be something different. It's often very clear, and it's most of the time, God is confirming something that he's already promised and already said. In this case, he's already promised evil King Ahaz that his enemies won't be victorious. And he said, just ask for a sign so I can confirm this thing that I've already done. It's it's not new information that God is giving through signs. Uh, So generally, we just shouldn't be asking God for signs. Except... When God's prophet goes to you and says, Ask for a sign. That's your green light. You can ask for anything at that point. And here we have Ahaz, whose heart is already evil. It already just has abandoned God in so many ways. It says, No, you know, I'm not going to test God. God is fed up at this point And says, Fine. I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive, and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us, that there will be a child that is born, and it's a sign of this promise that your enemies will not be victorious because God is with you. Now, if this prophecy is just about Jesus, it's not really all that comforting to King Ahaz, is it? And we see this. Look at verse 15 and 16. It goes on to say, so you'll call him Emmanuel. Look at verse 15, though. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows, how, knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So that this child, essentially what he's saying is this child is going to be about 12 years old, and by that time, these two nations that are threatening you will be gone. Well, Jesus doesn't come along for hundreds more years. So who is this child? Um, and these things, these things are not true of Jesus, verses 15 and 16. And so what, what do we make of this? Well, in, in biblical prophecy, we often talk about near fulfillment and far fulfillment. That when a prophet makes a promise... There's, there can be an immediate fulfillment that also foreshadows and also points to a future fulfillment, that the prophecy really gets fulfilled twice. And so what happens, if you read on in, in the book of Isaiah, the next chapter, there is a child that is born. The child's name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And again, there's some debate over who the child is. Is the child Hezekiah or someone else, or is it? I believe it's Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Now, when we hear the virgin's going to give birth to a child, he'll be called Emmanuel. We just think Jesus. We never think, oh, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> but the child is born. And really, by the time that child is uh, a, a young, you know, in the, in the next number of years, these nations are no longer a threat. But Ahaz, what happens is Ahaz has a choice here. He can trust God's promise, or he can trust something else. So what does Ahaz do? He trusts something else. This is accounted in, in 2 Kings chapter 16, uh, verse 7. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I'm your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel, who are attacking me. So this is what he does. The two kings are attacking him. God has promised that they won't be successful. But Ahaz goes ahead and hires Assyria's superpower to wipe them out. And this is what he does. Ahaz, verse 8. Ahaz took, 2 Kings 16, 8. It's not on your text yet. Uh, Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and the treasuries of the royal palace, and he sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus, capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kerr, and he put resin to death. So he hires Assyria, and he allies with them to wipe out his enemies, and he gives them stuff from God's temple to pay him. And it it worked in a sense. But what happened is, now that he's, instead of just trusting God's promise, he's now trusted this super-powerful nation now he's, he's not threatened anymore by Israel and by Aram. He's now got to keep Assyria happy. They're on his side. You've got to keep them on your side. You've got to keep paying tribute. You've got to keep working at it. And this is how Scripture describes it. Second Chronicles chapter 28. It says, Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came to Ahaz but gave him trouble instead of help. What happened was, now that you've made this alliance, I've got to keep that king happy. And I've got to keep that king's gods happy. So Ahaz rearranges the furniture at god's, in God's temple. And he's, he cut holes in it. And some of it he got rid of. And he's putting up all these other altars to these other the gods of Assyria. And he's just, it, it, he's just trying to... And you have to keep paying tribute. And you have to keep paying them off. It, it's just making more trouble than it saved him. And we have to just stop here a minute and say... Why why would God make such a beautiful promise to evil King Ahaz? I'm going to save you. And why does he care about him? If if I'm God, I would say, Ahaz, you don't want my promise and you don't want a sign? Fine. I'll just let them come get you. I'll let them kill you. Now you're glad I'm not God. The, The reason why God cares about evil Ahaz and the reason he gives him this promise is because God's Promises are good, and God's promises are always true. God had made another promise many years before to another king, a king named David. And God said, from your family line, I'm going to raise up a totally different kind of king, an eternal king whose throne will never end. His rule will be complete. This is the Messiah king. This is the one who will come and save the people, and his rule will be forever. Forever. And David, I'm going to bring it about through your family line. Who do you think Ahaz is related to? David. God's just fulfilling a promise he made to King David through this bloodline, and now it's to Ahaz, and God is protecting this evil king because he's bringing about something greater in the future. But does Ahaz trust this? No. He puts his ultimate trust, not in God, his promises, he puts his ultimate trust in the Assyrian army, the very powerful army. And here's where we learn about God's heart. God's desire is for us to trust him ultimately. Again, verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. That's how God created us, to be dependent on him, for him to provide for us, to be in this relationship, this God-with-us relationship. But the sin in our own hearts and our desire to do it ourselves It it breaks that relationship. And and we violate this nature for us to be dependent and trust God, and we go our own way. But what happens when we do that is whatever we were afraid of, our fear doesn't ultimately go away. It just gets transferred. King Ahaz and the people were afraid of the nations to the north, so they just went with Assyria. Now they're afraid of Assyria. When we transfer our fears to something else, it just gets... it just gets transferred. It doesn't go away. If your fear is that you don't have enough money, what, what do you do? You just work harder to get more money and you get a better job. But now the fear is, well, what if I lose my job? Or what if I lose my ability to work or perform? See, your, your fear isn't gone. It's just transferred to something else. If your fear is that people won't like you or accept you as you are, you can do whatever you think will be acceptable to other people and you can... Um, you could pursue those things, and I'm going to do things that I think other people will value and to be accepted by others. And, but in the process, you have a, the new fears. I've got to maintain that new me. And my original fear was that people would accept me the way I am, and now I'm trying to be something else so that I will be accepted. My original fear is still there. If your fear is the, new, you know, the direction our role is in, it's like, now I've got to... What if I just put my trust in, in, in a candidate or a, a movement, a political movement? Or, well, then you've got to, that thing's got to be stable and, and hold together. And it's only in God that we can genuinely transfer our fears in a way that we can be safe and be secure. Think about fear. Fear is just being overwhelmed. It's, anything that's out of your control can become a fear or a worry or anxiety because you can't control it. And you can transfer it to something else. But we, we need to put it into something that's overwhelming, but overwhelming and true. God's love. And Pastor Brian, for those of you who were here last week, he was speaking of that. Just the weight and the glory of God in his very presence in our lives just falls on us. And That's the overwhelming, that's the thing that should overwhelm us, not, these, uh, not the rest of the world around us. Will we be overwhelmed by God's love? His heart is that we will stand firm in our faith, or we will not be able to stand at all. And finally here, this is pointing us also not just to God's heart, but to Jesus. Again, this beautiful promise, a virgin will be with child and, and give him the name Emmanuel. The far fulfillment of that is, is, is Jesus. And just as God saved evil Ahaz, in the nation, and God saved God saves us. And the sign of that is, is a child, it's Jesus. And as we think about this passage, and again, we're cautious not to read ourselves into it, but if we are going to read ourselves into it, it's not so much that we are Ahaz, although we can think about it in those terms, it's it's almost as if we're Ahaz's subjects, that we are God's people. And, In verse 2, it's it's not just Ahaz who's afraid, but it's all his people. These are people who are afraid of the threat that's against them, and they've got a horrible king leading them. We are God's people, and there's all kinds of threats, and we need a good king. We need a king who is truly faithful. If we don't stand firm in the faith, we can't stand at all. But I don't stand firm in my faith. I fail and I struggle in my faith. I need need a king who's going to do it perfectly, who can make the right decisions, who can ultimately stand in my place and defend me against every enemy. They had evil King Ahaz. We have good King Jesus. And we can take our fears and put them to him and be overwhelmed by his love and protection. Because while I fail in my faith, when I am a sinner, Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus did not take his kingly authority, something for his own advantage or his own gain, but made himself nothing and made himself obedient. He took on the form of, of human nature. He took the form of a servant and gave his life on the cross for us, faithful to the very end. God came to seek and save that which was lost, me. An evil Ahaz in my own right. He laid down his life for me that I might live. That's overwhelming love. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the king that we need. We're going to be overwhelmed. There'll be times when you'll feel overwhelmed. So what are you going to be overwhelmed by? Are you going to be overwhelmed by your circumstances, or are you going to be overwhelmed by God's love. We just have to constantly remind ourselves, as Paul says in Colossians, that our lives are hidden with Christ. Or as Jesus said, I give you eternal life and I, you shall never perish and no one can snatch you out of my hand. That we are God's possession. Whether I live or I die, I am the Lord's possession. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Fear nothing. So think back now to the thing you're afraid of. Whatever that thing is that causes you worry right now. Anxiety. Trouble. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with that fear? Because it makes all the difference what you do with it. The choice matters. If you relinquish your fear to God and you trust Him, there is genuine peace and genuine Safety in the midst of whatever trial it is. Because you're not just shifting your fear to something else. But with God, you are ultimately safe. Amen.